Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. I grew up watching Doctor Who, Star Trek, E.T., Day of the Triffids, and Red Dwarf. Sci-fi totally captivated me and still does. I just finished watching the new season of Westworld and loved the show Altered Carbon. But it wasn't until I read and listened to New York 2140, a novel by Kim Stanley Robinson, that I understood the powerful way in which climate change and science fiction are colliding. 2140 is a book about the future written with the benefit of hindsight. We can predict with a high degree of certainty that melting ice from Greenland and Antarctica, the warming oceans, and subsiding coastlines will all contribute to rising sea levels. There is an inevitability to sea level rise that is palpable today. Robinson writes a novel set within an accurate scientific forecast. In 2140, Stan Robinson does what a generation of environmental advocacy has failed to do, make climate change personal. The book is focused on Madison Square in New York, and each chapter is narrated by a different character. The building manager, an intertidal derivatives trader, a cloud TV star, a city bureaucrat with political ambitions, two orphan boys, an NYPD inspector, and two homeless computer programmers. The story includes a treasure hunt, kidnapping, romance, politics, and high finance interspersed with an additional narrator, The Citizen who affords Stanley Robinson the opportunity to punch his message home. 2140 describes two pulses of sea level rise. The first increase of 10 feet occurs between 2052 and 2061. The next 40 feet arrive at the beginning of the 2100s. Kim Stanley Robinson is the author of more than 19 novels and is considered the preeminent science fiction writer in the US today. I meet up with Robinson in his hometown of Davis, California. It's about 95 degrees, so we sit outside and order some drinks. I start by asking Stan what attracts us to science fiction. Well, I think it's an interest in ideas and in the future and in wildness that maybe we don't have in our suburban uh, middle American lives right now. It has been mostly an American and an Anglo thing. Every citizen of uh, industrialized countries has an image of its own future that gets expressed as science fiction. And when countries get industrialized, they suddenly develop a science fiction, like China now, uh, and maybe India later. Uh, so it began in England and then America, and uh, it is then, then there was a Soviet science fiction. And so it's a, a function of the industrial imaginary. It, once you are... At our level of civilization, science fiction is the realism of your moment in the sense that things are changing so fast that you don't have stability, you don't have a sense of deep past, you have a sense that the the future already impinging on you and everything changing. So then science fiction becomes your form of realism. And so that's how I got to science fiction. And that's how I think all science fiction readers come to it. Science fiction seems like such a great tool for helping us see the future impacts of environmental issues in a way that other literary genres don't seem able to achieve. Science fiction, by having a trajectory into the future, it does stuff that so-called literary realism just is incapable of. 
um, this Amitav Ghosh talking about in The Great Derangement, his book about how, well, oh, literary fiction, the only fiction that matters, can't portray climate change. Well, he's missed the boat. Science fiction is the realism of our time, the strongest literature of our time. And he's doing some kind of weird historical fiction and worrying about it. Well, he should write science fiction. And when you're writing science fiction, and especially in our moment, what's strange is that no one can predict the real future that's going to come. That's impossible. So, and from our moment, you could have a complete catastrophe. Uh, 200 years from now, it could be a mass extinction event that would hammer humanity itself. And that's completely realistic, given the trajectory that we're on. But also given our technological powers, our scientific powers, and our maybe growing political savvy, our, our social skills as a global village, it's also possible that from this moment we could create quite a prosperous utopian society 200 years from now. And what I think is disorienting and weird and, and makes our moment feel so weird is both of those are possible. They're physically possible, they're socially possible, and they're as far apart as they could be. They're almost 180 degrees. It's um, frightening how wide apart they are, and yet both are possible. And I will say also, the middle is unlikely. If we trend towards the bad, it's going to be really bad. If we fight and get towards the good, it's going to be really good. And the middle is sort of like this attenuating peninsula, like you're hiking in a ridge in New Mexico with steep drop-offs on both sides. And uh, and you got to stay on the ridge, but if you drop off the, the side that goes towards the good, there you're going to go. There's going to be momentum. If you drop off towards the bad, it's going to be harder than hell to shift back over the ridge. So um, it's a strange moment in history. I, 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 will, I, I suspect that every moment in history felt really strange and unprecedented. But I'm saying this moment is maybe more unprecedented than ever before. How did you decide, Stan, to focus your novel um, on climate change? And why did you set it in New York? I wanted to write about New York, and I was interested in doing another climate change novel that took on this different angle of sea level rise, because there was this James Hansen paper that was published actually after I started, uh, but confirming the notion that even the temperature rise that we've already created might result in quite drastic sea level rise. And it really comes down to the ice mass that's perched on Antarctica that is unstable. And so a small rise in temperature, especially ocean temperature, could cause a huge amount of ice to crash into the sea pretty rapidly. So I wanted to write about New York as a kind of Venice, and yet I wanted to be semi-realistic about it and talk about real dangers. So I had to put it out to the year 2140 just to give enough time for something quite drastic like that to happen. So all these things combined to make a, a, a good opportunity for a science fiction novel that discussed all this stuff. I also wanted to talk about global finance and how that's crucial to climate change. I mean, I love the book. It's kind of a romp. It's got treasure hunts. It's got all kinds of fun stuff happening. You also included this role of the citizen. Tell us a little bit about what, why you had the citizen, this, this kind of person that can stand up and say whatever they like about the situation. I've become a kind of notorious as the science fiction writer that will do what people call expository lumps, which I would say is a nasty term, but better than the even worse term of the info dump. 
So you're not supposed to do those. Those are bad. And yet I think they're very important for science fiction to be able to explain what it wants. And the novel used to be filled with exposition. And now this, this model that there's no such thing as a narrator and you have to have nothing but dramatized scenes with an invisible narrator, well, that's crippling. And I've never believed in it. And in this novel, I had the citizen. So about every 10th chapter, every 8th chapter or so, is the citizen going, a New York citizen, just an anonymous guy, a smart aleck, a sarcastic, cynical, a Yankee fan, all this kind of stuff that I'm not. And it was all there for um, me to make commentary on the action, to give the history, to give the commentary, to give the explanations, to go into expo exposition mode while still having to be a comedy. Because by and large, that book is a comedy. Yeah, it's a comedy with a tragedy. Let's focus on capitalism because you, you, know, you reserve a lot of your venom and ire for the system. I have always been a, a leftist and an anti-capitalist, and I think it's a system of ownership that is hierarchical where you get the 1% and everyone else. And so this is not particularly alarming or news. Everybody sees it now, and the question is, do we, what do we do about it? I would say that in the capitalist system is a, a way of, of uh, expropriating value and accumulating value in the form of capital from the work of everybody and from nature itself, from the productive values of the rest of the biosphere get, get concentrated into capital and then owned by a small minority of the people. So that's the system I'm describing. And it's not um, revolutionary to say that. We're all in it. We all see what's going on. So then, how, what do you do? Yeah, that, that always is the next question. Yes, capitalism is contributing to destroying the planet, but what do we replace it with? Talking of which, Stan, how do you price something that you can't do without, like clean air? Well, um, since it never valued nature, those were all externalities in the technical economic sense of capitalism, then you need to begin to uh, value them and say, these natural services are so valuable that we can't live without them. So in a way, they're kind of priceless. So how do you, val how do you price something that, is, uh, that you can't do without, you can't live without? the natural systems. Uh, uh, can you put a dollar value on that? Well, not very adequately, because if you were to say supply and demand and you needed it in order to lot live, then the demand is kind of an infinity. So everything that is important for life support is worth infinity. So that doesn't work when you're in a money system. So then artificial values are assigned and they've been too low. And we're burning up the world for our generation when the future generations are going to be handed a degraded biosphere that won't uh, support them properly. So if you were to price that stuff, it would be a change. And it would have to come from other than the market system. Because the market system is always wrong. Why is the system always wrong? Buyers want things as cheaply as possible because they're broke. Sellers want to stay in business. So they offer things uh, for as cheaply as they possibly can and still make a profit. And they're in competition with each other, so they begin to lie. They begin to um, sell things for less than it costs to make them. Everybody does that, and they pretend that they're making a profit, but what they're really doing is ripping off the future and the natural world in order to sell stuff cheaply enough to stay in business, when actually it was more expensive in, 
in the long view. And so it's a Ponzi scheme in which all of us alive today are ripping off the future generations who are eventually going to be handed the bill. So, okay, so who's going to pay the bill? Standard economics would say, oh, future people are richer than us. We don't need to worry about them. We discount the future. But in reality, the future people are not going to be able to pay those bills. So these cars that are passing by us here in Davis, you know, you could buy that one for about $30,000. Well, maybe it really should have cost about $200,000 or $500,000 if you're paying the true cost. But we don't charge ourselves that because we rip off the future. So this is capitalism. And what's interesting is to say, okay, 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 that's true, I admit that, but what would be better? How can we solve it? How can we replace the market when the market seems to be crowdsourced and democratic and not uh, ruled by some tyrannical um, uh, price setter? Well, it's not obvious the answer to that. Not at all obvious. And um, economics and economists let us down. They don't do political economy. They don't do speculative economics where they say, oh, well, it'd be better to do this. They just analyze the system as it is and say, oh, well, maybe you could tweak this or that. But they never go to fundamentals. So, you know, this is what I, this is maybe what science fiction can do. And it's what, at least what I'm trying to do. In 2140, the chapters are named after different economic theories, which is kind of bizarre. One is called the tyranny of sunk costs. Stan, what does that mean? What are the tyranny of sunk costs? Sure. This is a term out of classical economics. And what it means is if you've sunk a lot of money into a project, a whole lot, then you don't want to abandon it. And it's a case of throwing good money after bad. And uh, it would be more expensive to start new with something smarter than it would be to keep throwing money into something that is ill-conceived in the first place. And it cracked me up as a term when I'm describing a New York that's flooded up to 50 feet higher than it is now, that those are definitely sunk costs. And the tyranny of it is, is in New York, just as an example, but this is maybe a, a, a synecdoche or a metonymy where New York stands for all of it. Some of that infrastructure would hold even through climate change, even through sea level rise. And you would try to hold onto it and improve it and make it work in the new situation. Other parts of it will be utterly devastated and fall apart. So there's something charismatic about New York in particular that I quite love as a Californian. It's a city that blows my mind. And I think if Manhattan flooded permanently, lower Manhattan, people would stay there. People would, uh, the tyranny of sunk costs and also this kind of native uh, inherent desire to stay where, somewhere beautiful, uh, the the skyscrapers that are sunk into bedrock would probably still be functional in the way that Venice is still functional. One of the things that 2140 highlights is that the 1% make a lot of money by betting on climate change. But right now we seem to be spending way too much time worrying about saving the physical assets of the rich like downtown San Francisco, buildings downtown, or Wall Street from sea level rise, when in fact the 1% seem like they're just going to be fine no matter what happens. Yes, the prosperous West is going to be the last to suffer from the impacts of climate change while also being the first to cause them. So the question becomes, what do you do about that? How can you perhaps act to compensate for that? Um, Changed behavior by Americans would have a spectacularly uh, uh, more than proportional effect 
on the rest of the world because we are so much of the carbon burn. And an ordinary American, a middle class, not someone in the top 1%, but just in the top 30% of the world, burns 30 times more carbon than your ordinary uh, citizen of India or China. So these are spectacular numbers. It it means that demographics means almost nothing, because even though there's a billion um, uh, Indians and 1.4 billion Chinese, if you run the numbers on energy burn, and if we, every one of us, equals like 30 Indians, then um, uh, what we do is proportionally vastly more important than what they do. And so it's worth thinking about these things and thinking not that you individually have to be a saint, although it is fun to live a stylish, low-carbon burn life. It's more interesting than just burning carbon and living in a cocoon of crap. But um, it needs to be systemic and institutional and political. And that's where we could do amazing things here, by working on the laws, the corporate corporations and corporate law of changing, of making the society, our society, pay the true costs. Once we did that, we could find what we would afford it, and the world would be better off and follow our lead, and, and we would be the crucial actors in that transformation. Because we're in a crisis moment, and strangely, the, all this human history that's been, you know, 100,000 years and 10,000 years since the Paleolithic and the end of the Ice Age, and yet our generation is going to make a massive effect on which way the next four or 500 years is going to go. So it's a peculiar moment to be stuck in and to think about. And now a word from our sponsor, Audible. My favorite thing about this podcasting gig is that I get to talk with fascinating people like Stan. It's a very different experience than reading an interview. There's so much more depth and context expressed in every spoken word. That's why I love listening to books on tape. <laughs> the only thing is... There are no more tapes, so I switch to Audible. No matter where I am or what I'm doing, listening to books allows my mind to immediately enter into the stories created by my favorite authors. That's why I'm hooked on Audible. Thanks to Audible, Stan's depiction of our not-so-hypothetical future came to life as I walked around New York and pictured my own surroundings 50 feet underwater. The High Line in Chelsea morphed into Venice in front of my very eyes. Audible brought 2140 into the present in a way that most environmental advocacy fails to achieve. I wanted to find out what else Stan had written. It turns out there are 19 of Stan's sci-fi novels on Audible, and I just downloaded the first of his Mars trilogy called Red Mars, narrated by Richard Ferrone. Here's a clip. Stories have naturally blossomed to fill the gap just as in Lowell's time, or in Homer's, or in the caves, or on the savannah. Stories of microfossils wrecked by our bioorganisms, of ruins found in dust storms and then lost forever, of big man and all his adventures, of the elusive little red people always glimpsed out of the corner of the eye, it can be exhausting living in 2018, so I treat myself by taking an audible break and escaping to a different galaxy now and then. It helps me gain the energy I need to tackle the present. 
good news is Audible is offering each of you a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. All you need to do is go to audible.com slash podship or text podship to 500-500 to start listening to books without all the hassle of actually having to read. It's one small step online, but it's a huge step for your mind. So go to audible.com slash podship or text podship to 500-500. You'll be opening your ears to nearly every book in the known universe. Now, back to our interview with Stan Robinson. You say in the book that we can't imagine catastrophes until after they hit. What does that say about our character or character traits? Well, I, I do think there's a kind of an evolutionary thing. Um, the, the aporia, the uh, not seeing, the blind spot. Uh, this Greek word aporia, not seeing. It's uh, Derrida loved it and the Greek philosophers loved it. It's a powerful term that we have blind spots in our mental vision, especially of the future, and it's very useful because if you see too clearly, you see, well, I'm going to die in somewhere between, you know, 10 and 30 years, 40 years for younger people, and so what does anything mean? And so that's not something we're capable of thinking of. So we're really good at not seeing disaster and catastrophe out of a personal bias. So, okay, you go on, but uh, culturally, I think this is what Buddhism is really good at, is saying, no, 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 wait, we're all mortal, Even the moment is mortal, the universe is mortal, you are mortal, don't worry about it. There were millions of years before you existed, there will be millions of years after you exist, and it's a healthier attitude towards mortality that maybe we re need right now, because... Um, the the world's in a situation, a kind of crisis that is centuries long. So we aren't going to solve that problem uh, of climate change, of environmental degradation in our lifetimes. But we still have to act like we can do something positive towards it, like scaffolding, like you would scaffold a cathedral. But scaffolding is actually a uh, a universal action of of constructing complexity and keeping things going. So this is what we need to uh, keep in mind and, and take a kind of a Buddhist attitude that even though everything changes always and we're not going to be here forever, there's still good and useful work to be done. One of the things that was just very powerful um, from a literary perspective and it really impacted me when I was reading the book was when the, when the barriers, the levees around New York City finally broke, they really broke. And this idea that we can somehow use walls to hold back the ocean, I mean, you kind of give it a, a large degree of folly. Uh, yes, uh, it's a stopgap measure that uh, it would depend on the idea that there's going to be a maximum limit, for instance, of sea level or of immigration, that if you could hold the line at that limit, it would never grow bigger. But in fact, the disruptions coming, both ocean sea level and in numbers of refugee immigrants around the world, are both going to rise to the point where they'll overwhelm these walls. And then there's going to be a, a cracking moment of disaster. So instead of coping with it, in an ameliorative way, you have this attempt to deny it entirely, at which point there's a break and it's worse than if you had admitted it all along. So it has a social and a physical aspect to it. We like to think of concrete as a solution to all our problems, and it, it might not be. But, um, 
So the the other thing that you talk about um, at the end of kind of a, a political campaign is they eventually pass a Piketty tax. What does that mean? Well, uh, Thomas Piketty, a French economist, did a useful thing in a peculiar way because he has this 900-page tome that tells you that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, which we already knew. So it's kind of hilarious. I call it the sky is blue uh, science, where somebody goes to enormous effort to prove to you that the sky is blue, and you're going, oh, okay, good. Um, so the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, but he's documented it in economic detail, in quantitative methods that are standard economic methodology. And then he said, well, what could we do to combat that? And he talked about simply progressive taxation, but his extra touch was that you don't just have progressive taxation on individual incomes, which we used to have in America, and they are quite powerful, but you can hide your individual income. If you're rich enough, you can toss it under the rug by various kinds of financial ploys, and then you don't really have very much of an income year to year, even though your asset base is huge. Well, what Piketty said was, let's tax progressively also assets. At that point, the more, the bigger the corporation, the bigger the tax they're getting hit with on their asset base rather than their income. And they would begin to break themselves into smaller and smaller units in order to avoid paying taxes. And what I didn't realize when I read his book and I loved his idea is that in France, uh, French corporations are already taxed at like 1.5% of their asset base that they simply pay to the French state every year. And that's why the French government is still flush enough to have health care and free education through college and the various, the Department of Culture and the other things that constitute a French lifestyle as opposed to a standard neoliberal capitalist lifestyle. So if these are uh, ordinary legislative acts that um, a left party could pursue, and if they were to institute them, it would actually make fundamental changes in our culture. So I, I love this. I call them Piketty taxes because um, A, he's the one that introduced them into the general culture, uh, and B, they were um, the Wall Street Journal and The Economist were completely incapable of saying why these would be bad. They said, oh, this is such an unrealistic idea but they couldn't say one word as to why they wouldn't work or why they'd be bad, because they would work and they would be good. How do you get your new ideas on economics? Like, how are you reaching out to the world to get ideas? Well, I'm lucky in that I'm part of a group based at UC Santa Cruz. I've, I, I, because of the books I've already written, I'm in contact with any number of radical economists who are um, way more sophisticated in this field than I am. Because I'm really just an English major and a storyteller, but uh, a magpie of ideas. But what's interesting is that I have good judgment in terms of what ideas would translate into good stories, good narratives of possible futures that could happen because of other people's ideas. So sometimes I think of myself as like the um, telephone operator in a 1940s uh, movie that's plugging in chords from different voices. I, and I'm just orchestrating the plugins. I'll, I'll let this voice talk, I'll let this voice talk. And New York 2140 is a perfect example of that. Let's let a bunch of voices talk and see what kind of story comes out of it. One of the characters in your book, Stan, in 2140 is called Amelia, and I love her. She helps transport polar bears or tries to from the Arctic where they can no longer survive to Antarctica. I was just reading um, in the paper that this is actually coming to fruition now, right, right now, with conservationists considering 
moving the last rhinos from East Africa to, of all places, I guess it's because it's pretty hot, Australia. Um, so what, what are the wildlife impacts of climate change? Sure. Um, the, we're in terrible trouble there. The uh, mass extinction event is the worst part of climate change, and the other mammals uh, are in particularly bad trouble, but all of the rest of the living creatures of Earth. And a mass extinction event is a bad thing morally and aesthetically, but also practically in that it'll hammer us also. So um, there's assisted migration. This is a concept in conservation biology. They don't like the name, but at least they've, they've got, they're stuck with the name. They've got to talk about it. And the idea is that you, let's keep these wild species alive. Um, only 3% of the meat on the planet is wild. The rest of it is us and our domestic beasts. And so this is a kind of um, emergency situation where I love this idea of rhinos in Australia because then what you have are people protecting the animals rather than poaching them and killing them. And there should be economic value, of course. We need to have a post-capitalist system where the, to the extent that you're taking care of wildlife, you are also making value in the world that you need to get compensated for. And so you have uh, stewardship. You have the idea of... Um, land stewards and of animal stewards, of gameskeepers, as they used to call them, except now you wouldn't be keeping them in order to get killed by the aristocracy. You'd be keeping them in order to keep them alive. And this could become a career that would be quite beautiful, that would be very fulfilling as a human thing to do. Like, what did you do with your life? Well, I managed to help keep the rhinos alive. That would be an incredible accomplishment. And it stands for all the rest of them. So I wrote about it in its most crazy and comic form. You know, polar bears, they might not survive in the Arctic if it warms up too much. And then the Antarctic will stay colder and icier. And yet there's never been polar bears in the Antarctic uh, environment. It would be, in many ways, a disaster. For the local Weddell seals, it would definitely be a disaster. But it might keep the polar bears alive. And then, you know, 300 years later, you could collect them all and bring them back to the Arctic if you had managed to stabilize the climate and draw down the carbon. What originally drew you to nature? And how did I know you're, you're not just writing about this stuff. I mean, you and I got to know each other through talking about the Sierras. Like, how did you fall in love with nature? It was in the ocean. I grew up in suburbia in Southern California, and I should be barking mad. Uh, and what saved me was the ocean. I was a body surfer, and we lived about 10 miles from the coast, and my mom, God bless her, would drive me out there at the drop of a hat because she liked it herself. And so from early childhood through uh, my college years, what my nature was was going out in the ocean and getting tossed about by the waves. And I thought I would never not do that. I, I loved it beyond all things, and it kept me sane. Um, but then I moved here to Davis, I was inland, and I had friends take me up to the Sierra Nevada. And so my love for nature has shifted from oceans to mountains. And we are lucky in California, the Sierra Nevada is this huge range, 400 miles long, 100 miles, 60 miles wide, and all wilderness and protected. And I was just up there last week and there are wild animals everywhere and they are not afraid of humans. They've never been shot, they don't care. And they're skittish, of course, because they're smart enough to know that we're weird, but they're not frightened. Um, and 
it's amazing how vibrant it is. It, once you get above 9,000 feet, there's not a whole lot up there because there isn't how much of a nutrient base. But what there is, what there can be up there is up there. And it's an incredible privilege to walk amongst these creatures and, be a, and, and realize they're not being helped by humans, but they're not being hurt by humans too much, except systemically. And um, they're living their lives and getting along. And it's, it's just a very beautiful experience. So yeah, beaches to mountains. And a very much of a California guy. One of the things I really like about your writing is that you manage to keep a sense of humor. Um, whereas if you go and see movies right now, they all seem to be of a very dystopian bent, um, which can kind of get old, I don't know. Sure. Dystopias are a real phenomenon now because they are an expression of our fears, and we have a lot of fears right now, and especially young people. So there's a YA literature that is heavily dystopian, and something like The Hunger Games is a real expression of how life feels now when you're young. So I don't... Uh, I think there's a, f a real function there. I don't put down dystopia, but eventually it gets too easy, and there needs to be something more. Uh, there's a complacency, like, okay, everything's going to hell, there's nothing I can do, therefore I just uh, I give up or I party. But many dystopias end with revolution, really. Like, this is intolerable, we have to fight. So, but also, what do you fight for? And then you need utopia, you need to talk about hopes. If we, if we did things well uh, and we continued to keep hope in our hearts, then uh, good things could come of that. And you need to describe what are those good things? What would it look like? What would it feel like? Would I still be me if I lived in utopia? Or would I have become some bland, you know, uh, tasteless automaton, which I think is the fear. Like, if you have to change, will you still be yourself? And this is, I think, the fear of utopia and the necessity that you write lots of utopias where, wait, you still are going to have death. You're still going to have love and unrequited love. Things are going to be monstrously dramatic and difficult even in utopia. And so that's the, the story I've been trying to tell is, is the, the story of things going right that still can't overcome uh, mortality or, or lost love or any of these things that will continue to uh, make like life um, tragic for the individual, but comic for the society. And this is, this is the utopian balance. Have readers of yours, they know you, so they understand how you write and what you write about. When you wrote about climate change, is it is a subject they're like, could you get off the soapbox? Like, why are you talking about climate change? Or, or are they understanding? A little of both, yes. Um, I think that now I am considered to be a highly political writer, a guy often on the soapbox, and maybe I was more fun before climate change hit my work, but that was a long time ago. And I've been uh, specifically trying to make climate change fun, which I know sounds stupid, but what I mean is there's a comedy to coping bad things are going to happen. We're going to have to cope with them. Humans are ludicrous in all situations. And so I'm thinking, can I make a fun story out of this um, catastrophe that we're facing and hopefully dealing with? The comedy of coping, I think, is the name of the last chapter. In any case, that's what I've been trying for. And you're right. My readers know me. If they like this kind of thing, they're sticking with me. If they don't, then I'm sort of like a quirky figure within the science fiction community. I'm like the weirdo 
the Boy Scout communist baseball player, I mean, who the heck is Stan Robinson? Well, uh, in the science fiction community, they're very tolerant. They like having the spread of writers that include quirky, strange people and, and different attitudes. That's part of the joy of science fiction is it's not monolithic. There are uh, raging right-wingers and uh, a dreamy left-wingers like me. And one part of the science fiction community is uh, uh, enjoying their own tolerance for all this stuff together. So I'm basically okay. And, uh, you know, at this point, a, a brand, <laughs> a particularly silly brand, but it's okay. I, I'm enjoying it and I have readers. So I think I fill a function. If only Stan Robinson had been L. Ron Hubbard, Scientology would have looked different. <laughs> oh. Yes. Well, Hubbard was a fool and a con man. Okay, so L. Ron Hubbard aside, there does appear to be a, a religious fervor to some of your work. Sure, I think that's right. I think, you're, I think you're seeing something there. From my mom being from Zion, Illinois, from my grandparents being evangelicals. Um, and also, the, uh, literature is my religion. I mean, I believe in it uh, as a way of making meaning out of the world, which I take it as what religions do. Well, literature is my religion. So I think that probably comes through. And hiking, just finally, I mean, like hiking in this era, for me, is a religious experience. Oh, for sure. I just got out after a week up there, and uh, there's a kind of a... It's not quite ecstasy, because you are not out of your body. You are in your body, and your body is often working really, really hard, and you're thinking, oh, my God, I'm I'm an aging animal, and I'm not as strong as I was five years ago. Uh, But there's something so beautiful about it, so beautiful that it has to be like a religious experience. It's an aesthetic experience, and and literature is an aesthetic aesthetic experience. So here I think the creation of meaning is, is, it's not all that mystical. It's very much like, here we are, we're animals, we're in this world. This particular part of the world is spectacularly dramatic and beautiful. And, you know, why not enjoy it? What this question that Gary Snyder has, what now is lacking? And, you know, you get out of the past, you get out of the future, you're in the present, you're going, this is a very good moment. Thanks so much to Stan Robinson for spending time with us today and for focusing his love of nature, understanding of science and economics, and his sense of humor on writing science fiction that reminds us of who we are. Ultimately, the power of Stan Robinson's work is that we now know what the future might hold. So we now have the opportunity to turn that scenario into fiction. What I took away from talking to Stan today is that our fear of our own mortality, which the Greeks called aphoria, blinds us from examining all kinds of difficult topics from climate change to inequality. The good news is that once we know our vision is impaired, we can go and do something about improving it. Science fiction helps us see a world just beyond the horizon, and on issues like artificial intelligence, singularity, and now the environment, sci-fi is now informing real science. Next week, we meet Paul Shapiro and talk about how in the future, we'll be printing 3D meals at home. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jerry Blumenfeld, have a fabulous sci-fi film week.